Hi, and thanks for joining in on the Pastor's Class Podcast. Whether you missed a week of class or just want to re-listen to a message, this is the resource for you. Be sure to visit our website at pastorsclass.org for any other information you might need. We hope this message blesses you. And again, thank you for listening. So glad to be back. How's everybody's day been? Good? Well, as Aaron said, uh, we were in D.C. last weekend. Thank you for letting us be away. And we got to go to the Museum of the Bible, and it actually inspired me. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Uh, my business partner is a book collector. So I've brought a couple of books that he let me borrow uh, from his collection. I'm going to put them back up here after, but I thought in the theme of the Bible. And this is actually one of the original pages from the Gutenberg Bible. Does anybody know what the Gutenberg Bible is? So the Gutenberg Bible was the, actually, the, it's actually the first printed book ever. Of course, that makes it the first printed Bible ever as well. And there is some things in here. This right here is just where they translate it over into English, and it's from Ezekiel. But there's some awesome things. I was reading this this afternoon. And it was just talking about the Gutenberg Bible may be described without the slightest exaggeration, not only as the earliest, but the greatest book in the world. And uh, there's a, uh, a note that was written by uh, Henry Stevens of Vermont, the London bookseller, in 1870. This was done in 1455 as he was sending one of the only the second purchased copy over the Atlantic, and he says, Pray, sir, ponder for a moment and appreciate the rarity and importance of this precious consignment from the old world to the new. Not only is it the first Bible, but it is the first book ever printed. Uh, it was read in Europe a half a century before America was discovered. Just amazing. The Bible is not only the oldest printed book, the most reprinted book with over two billion copies, the most translated book, and the most important book in history. So I'm going to leave this up there. And uh, there was only, I read on here how many there were, there was only 300 uh, copies made in that original printing. And there's only 45 that are known today. So it's a very interesting. Um, the second thing he brought, because I asked him for this one, but the second thing he brought me in was this Bible, which is a Bible from 1603 that was translated by a guy named Robert Barker. Have you ever heard that name? Gary's heard. Gary knows everything, by the way. So if you have a question, Gary right there, he knows everything. He's the only one that raises his hand every time I have a question, okay? <laughs> every time. I'm just going to ask Gary if I ever have a problem. Robert Barker, so this is in 1603, and Robert Barker was the printer for King James. And in 1611, he did the translation that we know as the King James version. Well, this was the last translated Bible prior to the King James Version. So it's uh, very old, as you can imagine. So I'm going to leave both of these uh, up here. And, you know, it's funny when I was talking this week and telling people about uh, going to D.C. and the Museum of the Bible, it's amazing that almost every person said, well, I can't believe that they would put it in D.C. <clears throat> <clears throat> Excuse me. And I started just thinking, y'all, why? Because when I walked around D.C., everywhere you go is something about God's Word. 
or about God. Everywhere. I mean, there's really almost no exception. It's incredible, to be honest with you, on every federal building, on just about every monument. Uh, in fact, even in the International Spy Museum, there's a scripture from Numbers that talks about when Joshua and the spies went out to check the promised land. Okay, so everywhere you go, in fact, one of the, I think, better uh, monuments was for Martin Luther King Jr., which was a Baptist preacher. And they've got all kinds of, <clears throat> of quotes up there that he had, and one of them is a quote from uh, a time when he was in Alabama, and he says something to the effect of, uh, while we're here in Montgomery, we're going to work and we're going to fight until justice rains down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Well, he's quoting from the Old Testament. And it's just all over the place. So to me, you know, when I think of, uh, of D.C., especially now, I've preached on this once a long time ago, uh, but now in, in particular, I, I think of God. It's everywhere. It's a Navy memorial. It's just anyone that would say that this country is not founded on biblical principles just really doesn't want to believe the truth. I mean, that's really the only thing you can say. It's everywhere. And the Bible Museum now is just, I think, this wonderful just uh, uh, icing on top of the cake, if you will. It was really a, an amazing experience to walk through those six floors and you know, I, I'm not much of a museum guy, I can tell you that, but I was overwhelmed really just, I was the only one, this, is a, this will really shock you, I was the only one, I think maybe other than Aaron, that wanted to go back and do it again after we did the first tour. Even my kids didn't want to go, but for me it was just so amazing just to, I tell you what really struck me is just walking through there and just thinking about and looking at all the lives, um, all the people that had just sacrificed so much. You could, you know, I know Aaron's a fan of George Whitfield. You could see a whole section on George Whitfield. You could see about, um, about Martin Luther and Martin Luther King Jr. and about Billy Graham and just everywhere. They've even got Elvis's Bible. I mean, that was the, I've got a picture of that. They had a, the King, his Bible. So everywhere. Just, just the people, though, that had just given their lives, really, and had trusted and obeyed God, no matter what, really. No matter what the circumstance was, no matter what uh, came their way, you could just see just uh, the Bible written all over their lives. It was really amazing to see. And, and, and if you think about it, through all those hard times, King David said that we should bless the Lord uh, at all times. It says that it, praise for Him should be in our mouth continuously. And if you, if you looked at that in the, the, the living translation, the, the living Bible translation, it says that we should praise the Lord no matter what. We should praise the Lord no matter what. And Jarrett talked about this a little bit tonight. And I'll, I'll give you a, a little bit of a way of, of what my lesson's about. But I looked over at Aaron as soon as he gave the title. And if you look at the top of my lesson, you'll see my title says, God, why? God, why? And I don't think I'm going to send my lesson to Jarrett after this is over tonight. Because I don't think he'll be too mad at me when I tell you that. As we go through this, I'm going to give you an answer to the why. I'm going to give you an answer for why things happen. Now, it may not be an answer that you're going to like, but I think there is an answer. I think there is a why, and I'm going to talk about it tonight. Now, this is not easy, though, to deal with, though, is it? I mean, he talked about it and what happened last Sunday when a crazy man walked into a church and killed 26 people. You know, this, it's, hard to, it's hard to just wrestle with that. And I'll tell you, since the moment it happened, 
I've just been going over in my mind constantly this why. Why? Just been studying scripture, been praying, been thinking about it. And you could just tell that God was working on me. Because as I went through the week, I had some hospital visits to make. Jarrett mentioned one of them. I've been visiting a lady who is 46 years old, actually. She had a heart attack out of the blue, healthy as can be, for 21, 22 days now. She's been on life support. I showed up there last Wednesday, and the night before, she had been dead for four minutes. You know, they have no idea. She's got two children. And I just sit there, and I'll tell you, those are hard, hard visits, because you just don't know what to say. You know, you just got a lot of people looking at each other wondering why. Why? And then I'll tell you, I had a, a busy day that day, and my, I wanted to just make a beeline back to my office. But as I'm driving that way, I could just feel the car pulling over because I had another visit that I needed to make. And I was going to just call because I know them so well, but I just couldn't do it. I just had to go there. So I went over to the children's hospital to, to, to visit with a, a little girl named Lizzie. And I've talked about Lizzie before, and she's a sweet, precious little girl, and she's been battling leukemia for years and years and years, and, and I'll have a hard time holding it together now. But I went in there, and she was in ICU, and her dad was there, and I could just see the weariness on his face. And I just, I, when I kneeled down beside that bed to pray with little Lizzie, it just hit me hard really hard, and I'm sitting there with tears just streaming down my face, and I'm, I'm asking that same question in my spirit of why? Why is this beautiful little girl having to go through this? Why? You know, and I got up, and I went out into the elevator, and when I left, boy, I just lost it, and uh, I would think that the person standing next to me would have thought I was crazy, but I was coming from the ICU on children's, and that's just a place that's filled, right, with tears, so it was normal. But why? You know, every time I'm in those situations, I think, man, there's lots of churchy answers I could give. I could talk about Romans 8.28, right? That God causes all things to work together for good. But you know what? It just seems to miss the point in those times. Those churchy answers don't seem to matter because we struggle in that moment with why. With why. That's what I've been asking myself is Why? You know, the Bible says in Isaiah 55 that, that God's ways are not our ways, right? His thoughts are not our thoughts. Like the heavens are above the earth. His thoughts, His ways are above our thoughts and our ways. I mean, we don't know God's plans. That, that's where Jared and I will agree tonight is we don't know God's plans. I think it's Proverbs 16.9 that says that the heart of, the, of, of us, of man, gets to choose the plan, but God directs the steps. I've never seen it that way because, honestly, the steps is the plan. So, really, it's not about me. It's about God and His plan. And I don't know it. That's why we struggle. You know, so it should be that it's expected. And, honestly, as I'm thinking about that Bible museum, this is not a recent phenomenon, that should give you some comfort that this isn't something that we're just struggling with today. This isn't something that is new to, to 2017. In fact, if you just look through that Bible museum, you'll see it filled with people that I'm sure that at some point was asking the same question of why. I mean, we're going to see it tonight. I'm going to cover two chapters, 
chapter 6 and 7. And inside of those two chapters, you're going to really see the entire ministry of someone by the name of Stephen. His entire ministry in two chapters. And we all know the story of Stephen, so I'm not giving anything away when I tell you that it ends in his tragic death. In his stoning. And I'm sure that the disciples then, and those that knew him, his brother, his sister, his family, must have been asking this question of why. Why? So we're going to look at it tonight and see if we can't come up with the answer of why. Why does this happen? So Acts chapter 6 is where we're going to start. Let's figure out where it starts. How does his ministry, how does Stephen's ministry begin? And there in verse One, it says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, and that's just a Greek speaking, someone that speaks a different language other than Hebrew, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. So the appointment comes out of a need, right? I don't think this is as much as of a complaint. It kind of sounds like they're complaining, but they're really not. I think they're really more just saying, hey, we need help. Okay, we need help. Sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? I mean, it's kind of good to know that we're still, I guess, dealing with the same problems they were dealing with then, and that is the... The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. They didn't have enough people that were helping those in need. So that's where this comes from. They needed someone to help, and they didn't need just anyone, right? I think that's sometimes we, I know myself, we make this mistake. Churches make this mistake all the time, I will tell you, in that we just need bodies. Just give me bodies. Whatever it is, I don't care. Sign me up. Give me bodies. Because if I get enough bodies, I can fill enough boxes, or I can do enough of this, or I can do enough of that, and it's going to change lives. But I think this is a good reminder that it's really not just about bodies. I think this could apply to just about everybody in this room and in this church that's going to step out and try to help someone. What, what were the three requirements? They said it had to be someone of good repute. That would be honest. Someone that's honest, someone that's full of the Spirit, a little bit of a test. So what does this mean? I've taught on this many, many times when, you know, give me the cross-denominational answer, all right? What does it mean to be full of the Spirit? Anybody? Come on. Lives inside of us, but what does it mean to be filled? I mean, to have that, the Holy Spirit burning inside of you. What makes the distinction between the person that does, that just sits there day after day and does nothing, and that person that's on fire for Christ, as we would refer to them? Surrender. Surrender. It's the easiest way to remember it. Are you fully surrendered in everything that you do to God's will? That's what it's about. Because if you are fully surrendered to God in everything that you do in your entire life, I promise you, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's about surrender. And then the last one, it says uh, that they have wisdom. This is another one I think that trips people up is kind of what's wisdom. Anybody got a definition for wisdom? It's kind of a hard thing to define. Anybody? 
Well, first, uh, we, we know it comes from God, right? Because in James 1, what does it tell us? That if you need wisdom, just ask for it, right? Uh, and I, it's not how much you know. So it's not a knowledge thing, really, right? It's not how much you know. It's not how much you understand. Let me tell you what it really is. It looks like Jesus. Because in Mark 6, they tell us that Jesus was full of wisdom. So when I get this question, Scott, tell me what wisdom looks like, my answer is always this. It means to imitate Christ. You want to show wisdom in your life? Then live a life that imitates Christ. And you look in uh, James 3, 17, where they define it. He says it's first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, like Jesus. So what are they asking for here? What are the disciples looking for? They're looking for honest men and women that are fully surrendered to Christ and to God's will for their life and that imitate Christ in what they do. I mean, that's a good start to a servant, don't you think? It's like the, I was thinking about this afternoon. It's like Gideon. Remember when they were calling the army out from 32 down to 300? It's not about the number, you know? You give me four or five people that are on fire. I've all, you know, it reminds me, just came to my mind, is one of the ministries we do a lot with is the ramp in Alabama. And Karen Wheaton leads that ministry. And I always think about the story of how it started. And now they have you know, literally tens of thousands of people that attend conferences every year. And it started when she says they had three or four people in a room and the Holy Spirit came into that room and just and filled their lives. And from that small little group, lives have been changed for years and years and years. You give me somebody that's fully surrendered, okay, that's imitating Christ, and they can do big things. So they had to pick these seven people. And one of the ones that they picked that you can see there in verse 5 uh, is Stephen, along with some others. And in verse 6 it says that set before the apostles and they prayed over them. They laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. I just love that. So you get people praying, you get people serving, and you'll see multiplication, right? I wrote that down there in my Bible. Pray plus serve equals multiply. Pray plus serve equals multiply. But that's not the only thing that happens, right? What we always see, we, I talked about this a few weeks ago, is what is it? If you're living a life, a godly life, what are you going to see? You're going to see persecution, right? We talked about that in 2 Timothy 3, and that's what we see here. We see that in the next part of chapter 6, that Stephen is seized. It says it there in verse 12, that they seized him. And why did they seize him? Because he stirred them up, it says. I love that. I just circled it and underlined it a bunch of times. He stirred them up because I feel like sometimes the establishment, they need some stirring. And he was stirring them up. And then if you looked in chapter 7, and I encourage you, I'm not going to read it all because I'll run out of time. But I encourage you to go back and study this because what Stephen does there is he really shows his biblical knowledge. He really gives you a, a rundown of the entire Old Testament. When he's standing before the high priest and they've now arrested him and he's going to get to tell them what's on his mind, he just basically takes them through an account of the entire history of the Jewish nation and of the Old Testament. He talks about things like the covenant that God made with Abraham that he 
took him out and he sent him out and he promised him that he would multiply him, that he would bless him and, and his descendants would be as, as voluminous as the stars in the sky and the, the, the sand on the seashore, right? And he talks about that and then he goes from there to talk about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He even knows his Bible so much that if you look there in verse 18, he's talking about why actually they ended up being slaves. It says, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Because they had multiplied, they had grown, and then they ended up in, in slavery. And then he talks about Moses and, and his rescuing them and leading them out of, of slavery and bondage. And talks about how they were disobedient, that we studied, remember, and they were, had to go and stay out in the, the wilderness for 40 years. So he takes them through all of this. Then he gets over into 44, and he starts talking about the temple, the tent of the witnesses, he calls it, before it was in a physical building, and talks about how Joshua brought it into the promised land. Remember when we studied Joshua and how he took the covenant and the Ark of the Covenant into the promised lands where the Holy of the Holies was in this tent Always came down like a cloud over this tent. And then he talks about how it stayed in this form through David, who found favor in the sight of God. And then it talks about Solomon, how he built the temple. So he takes you through all of this. But then he also quotes from Isaiah 66, talking about how God doesn't live in a building. He says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? And then in the last part there is where he's really going to start turning it on them, on this high priest and the establishment. And he starts telling them, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts and your ears. You just don't believe. you got a hardness. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one of Christ, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Made them mad, calling them out, reminding them, listen, you're doing exactly today what your forefathers did. The same thing, you're repeating history. Made them enraged, it says there in 54, and then they stoned him, 58. But look at the end there, what does he do? In 59 there he says, I'm calling out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, that's some wisdom right there. Talking about imitating Christ. Does it remind you of Christ in those words? Forgiving him at his death. You know, but then I, I took you through a whirlwind of his ministry. It was short though, right? Didn't last that long. Didn't last that long. And it leaves you when you get through with this and we turn the corner and we go to start talking about Saul who becomes Apostle Paul it's just we leave Stephen and and again it's so easy just to go to that next chapter but there must have been family and friends and people in his lives that must have been asking why I mean over here he was just appointed to, to help the disciples. He was starting his ministry. He was obviously knowledgeable. He'd obviously been alone with, with God. He had obviously uh, knew his Bible. He had studied well. I mean, look at the way he was described. It says there in verse 5 of chapter 6, he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And verse 8, it says that Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs. I mean, so here's this, here's this 
this disciple of Christ that's on fire for Jesus, that's out telling people, is out witnessing, is out helping, is out sharing. And before he can even get started, he's gunned down with a stone to death. And you just wonder, why? Why? Why did this tragedy happen? And they had to be asking that same question. And I'm going to tell you, here's my answer. It's the only answer I can come up with. The why is to point people to Jesus. That's the why. The why of these things happen is to point people to Jesus. You can decide whether you like it or not, but it's the only reason I can tell you that makes sense, right? And it's the only thing. If you look at the Bible, it's to point people to Jesus, whether it's Lizzie in that room and how she pointed my heart to Jesus I mean, think about that. I saw Jesus just looking at that sweet child in that bed. All of that heartache and all that she struggles with. And, I, and, I, and one of the things I love is when I read the, she's one of the few. It's so funny. I, you know, when I pull up my Deacon app, her, her page comes up no matter what. I, I've never, it never goes away. The first thing it comes up to is her page. And I get to read like all the posts because she's always in the hospital. And I get to read about how the deacons will say that, that they get more out of it than, than they ever give. By going to be with her. Or what about those killed in that church? I mean, I don't know how many of you have been like reading the paper and following this, but I brought some in that I've just been keeping these as I go through them. And I just, I'm amazed, you know? I mean, look at the tragedy and what's affected their lives. And then you see pictures like this. On their knees. Jesus lives in my city. You're the light of the world. I mean, that's... Pointing people to Jesus, or this one, one way, Jesus, in the midst of this tragedy. And then there was this great article that talks about this Peggy Warden, this grandmother that laid her body on her, her grandson and saved his life. And he, were, he, he did the same thing for another child. And I was just reading this and it said, she was the most unselfish person on the planet. And this is a great, I hope, I hope that someone would describe me this way. She was a soldier of the cross. She was a soldier of the cross. Her last act on earth was in that church. And what she did, her grandson repeated. You see it all the time. I was, uh, Aaron, I, I, I don't really keep up a lot what's going on. I depend on my wife and others. And she sent me this, uh, this, this video. Uh, and she said, you know, we need to play this in class. And I thought... Well, it kind of fits right in right here about pointing people to Jesus. And it was on the Country Music Awards show the other night. I don't know how many people saw it when Carrie Underwood sang. I'm going to play it. Uh, I'm going to play the video of her singing because what she's doing in that is she's memorializing those that, that were lost. And part of the ones she was memorializing are the ones that died in Las Vegas. And if you remember at first when, when it happened, a lot of people said that it was an attack on Christians because a lot of country music fans are Christians. So again, another example of how tragedy can point people to Jesus. Calling for you and for 
tragedies happen is it is it uh, any less painful no but you hear that name of Jesus I guarantee you wouldn't hear that in that country music show you know and sometimes you just don't know do you I mean you don't know how it's going to end up I'm not saying you always get to see the fruits of that I mean, I think about this moment in Stephen, and I wonder about the people that were doing the stoning. I mean, how do you, do you think their life was impacted by his act of forgiveness? And some have said that they saw God in him like an angel almost. I mean, do you think they were changed in that moment? Or what about the disciples? I mean, how do you think their faith was you know, resolved and you think that it just made them more determined. I mean, who knows what came about this because of what happened to Stephen. Or what about that young man that was standing there by the name of Saul, who later became Apostle Paul. See, I believe that in that moment, that the seed was planted in his heart. At that moment, I believe that that seed was planted. And I'll tell you why I believe that. Because if you went over and you turned over to Acts chapter 22, and you looked in verses 19 through 21, where where Paul is talking to Jesus, he says, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And Jesus said, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. After all that time, he never forgot it. He never forgot what he witnessed at that moment. I mean, you just never know if if. Stephen's death birthed that ministry of the greatest church planner and evangelist of all time. Think about the people that were pointed to Jesus. So that's my only answer is to point people to Jesus. We don't always know God's plan. Okay, We don't know what his plan is. It's, his ways are higher than our ways. In fact, I, I saw this quote from Gerald Hill who was an elder at First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs. He said, this is pure evil. We must trust in the Lord with all our heart. I don't know why this happened, but God does. Listen, we don't know the plans. We don't know God's ways. We don't know his thoughts. But I'm telling you, we know the why. It's to point people to Jesus. That's what God's about. That's our whole life is about. Another one of those churchy verses is is from Genesis 50, 20. Write this down. Go look at it. Go think about this verse. Because it's when Joseph, remember, and he's talking to his brothers who had thrown him into a pit and sold him into slavery. And you'll remember it when I read it to you. It says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What man intended for evil, God used for good. You're very familiar. It's a very churchy verse. You use it all the time when people are in suffering. But what I want you to focus on is at the end of that verse 20, and it gives you the why. 
it gives you the why. It says, to bring about that many people should be kept alive. It's prophetic. It's what it is. So that many people will be kept alive to bring people to Jesus. It's giving you the why right there. And it doesn't make it hurt any less. And, and if, if it is your why, if you know that, even if you know that it's to point people to Jesus, then I think it's okay to ask, then what? Okay, I get that, Scott. I know that it's all about pointing people to Jesus. Then what? Well, Jerry gave a few things tonight, right? Focus on the eternal. I believe that. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Walk by faith. I would add, like those in the Bible that I just looked and thought about, trust and obey. Reminds me of that song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And it also reminded me of a story that I read recently about that, and I'll... I'm coming to an end here, I promise. And uh, it was talking about a young man that was at a D.L. Moody event in Massachusetts. And at this event, this young man stood up to testify of his salvation. And he said, listen, I'm not quite sure. Meaning that he wasn't really certain that God would save him from his sins. But then he continued on to say, but I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey. And the song leader that night was a guy named Daniel Towner. He was so impressed by the young man's testimony that he wrote down those words and he sent them in a letter to his friend, John Samus. He told John about this young man's testimony, included the young man's word. He said, I'm not quite sure, but I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey. And you guessed it, Samus and Towner in 1887, they turned those words into the hymn that we still sing today, Trust and Obey. And what's really amazing to me about that story, though, is that this song, and think about the millions and millions and millions of peoples that it's touched all over the world, and it began with a young man's testimony, and to this day, nobody even knows his name. Nobody knows his name. But you just never know what God's going to do when you trust and when you obey. Everything that we are, we don't know what God's plan is always. We're not... We don't know. His ways are higher than our ways. But we know the why. It's about pointing people to Jesus. It should be about everything we do, right? Our whole lives. I mean, if you think about it, it was really the reason Jesus came. It was the whole reason for him to come, right? To seek and to save the lost. It was to point people to himself, to bring people to his Father. To me, it doesn't make it any easier. It doesn't make it any less painful. But there's some hope that I get from knowing that whatever the suffering might be, that that moment last Sunday or little Lizzie or this young woman that's on life support that have put their faith and trust in Jesus and yet senselessly it just seems like just tragedy is just destroying their lives and the lives of those around them. There's just something that gives me hope in the midst of that and knowing that God is going to take that and he's going to point people to Jesus. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, like we prayed tonight in service, Lord, we want to lift up the families of all these, Lord, that have just been taken way too early, Lord, whether it be in Sutherland Springs or in Las Vegas or Lord, all the different acts of terror across our country and so much directed, Lord, at believers not only here in the U.S. but abroad. God, we lift our brothers and sisters up to you, Lord. We ask, God, that you would Lord, give them peace and comfort. Lord, I pray, God, that you would give them hope and knowing, God, that, that the sacrifices, the tragedies are 
God, not without purpose, but Lord, that you would use them to point others to you. Lord, thank you that you loved us enough to send your son to, to die to save us. God, whatever we do and whoever we are, God, I pray that we would be available and surrender to you, sold out for you, Lord, to be used in whatever way you so choose, God, to bring people to you, to save people from a death that will last for an eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.